It's midday for President's Day. This is the 19th of February. You used to call this uh, Washington's birthday, I believe. When did they change it? Uh, th- this has got to go back 30, 40 years now, I think. But uh, I was saying earlier that, you know, I was happy to celebrate Washington's, Lincoln's birthday. Then they happened to, they mashed them all up together. And I'm not sure that each and every one of those presidents deserves a day, much less a minute. Good point. (laughs) Here we move ahead into our President's Day edition of Midday, and welcome to the roundtable. We have uh, Susan Littlefield, and uh, how are things this morning uh, in surprise? Definitely icy. There's a lot of slip slide in a way. We had one area of school with a two-hour late start, and then everybody else just kind of crept their way to get to school and work this morning. So mm-hmm. folks are still taking it easy because it's kind of snowing right now. So you did get the drizzle before the snow, the freezing drizzle. Oh, yeah, because when I let the dogs out this morning, I watched the blue healer go sliding <laughs> across the sidewalk. And he right. couldn't stop. It looked well, like yeah. a colt with gangly legs. <laughs> I'm looking at that scene in my head here, and it's very, very funny. <laughs> All right, Susan. Well, you uh, you make sure you stay on your feet out there with uh, with your thumb and all. What do you have for oh, us here? Yeah. I know you're getting ready to move over to Ag News here in just a second. You bet. We've got coming up a, a variety of different agricultural issues. Tyler Highbrock will be joining daily at 12 and 19. Then Dave's going to step in with Minority Health Initiative. That's going to come up at 1245, and then at 117, Bruce Gorder talks about this recent Iowa Slicing Research Trials, the updated information from this last 2017 growing season. All right. Very good. We'll let you take your place over here at the mic, and we'll uh, we'll move ahead with Jason here. Thank you. Thank you. And over here at Jason Jorgensen Land, what's going on in sports? A lot of Facebook angst. A lot of social media activity yesterday afternoon Uh-oh. as the Nebraska men's basketball team lost at Illinois. Yeah. Stopped their six-game winning streak. They needed that victory, although I, I think they still have a decent pathway to making the NCAA tournament. But it probably involves a win tomorrow night against Indiana, then a win over the weekend against a Penn State squad that's playing very, very well. And then the Huskers may have to win a game in the Big Ten tournament. But... All all is not lost, uh-huh. although it would have been nice to see them come up with a victory yesterday in Champaign, but that happens. It's, it's been happened. quite a run, and this is uh, by far the most successful Husker effort in a long time. It has been, and it would be it would be so Nebraska basketball-like <laughs> if they would you know, win 21, 22 games and then that not be enough to get to the tournament. Oh, Hopefully yeah. that's not the case. We'll hear from head coach Tim Miles coming up in basket in sports. Also, speaking of basketball, big game of the Big 12 tonight. KU will look to get some revenge against Oklahoma as the Sooners knocked off the Jayhawks about a month back uh, down in Norman. So we'll touch on all of that. And Eric Hosmer is no longer royal. Uh, He's headed to San Diego. All right. Bob Brogan, what's business doing today? Anything? Investor Warren Buffett will release his annual letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders on Saturday, and that will be well read. Uh, the utility that owns Cooper Nuclear Station says that the plant adds millions to the state's economy, and uh, Cabela's headquarters employees have received buyout offers, so those are some of the stories we're following. Thank you, Bob. All this and more is coming up on your President's Day edition of Midday. 
We'll bring in Paul Perkins now with our ag weather brought to you by Kuhlman Repair. Where's all this going? Oh, downhill, <laughs> especially from what we saw yesterday. 60s yesterday. It made it up to 68 yesterday in Sydney. Right now, their wind chill is minus 8. So it feels in just a 24-hour period, 76 degrees colder in Sydney, Nebraska right now. Wow. All right. And we're seeing uh, there's been some slickness involved with this as it begins to roll through here. And then on top of that, we're going to pile on possibilities of pretty good precipitation. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Most of the snow activity should be towards northwest and north-central Nebraska. We do have some winter weather advisories in effect for north-central and eastern Nebraska Yet again, for another system moving through for tonight, we've had this one wave of moisture move through initially this morning that brought the freezing drizzle and light snow to the region. More waves of precipitation expected later today, especially towards the Panhandle, where they're expecting about 4 to 8 inches of snow. Towards the Sand Hills, about 2 to 4 inches of snow. Freezing drizzle and snow remain possible as we head into tonight once again in much of Nebraska. Little bit of that chance over northern Kansas. Low pressure continuing to track across southern Kansas. We're going to see this break from the precipitation this afternoon, but more wintry precipitation possible tonight as that second disturbance tracks towards the east. Lexington to Ord and points to the west are looking at the potential of some light snow accumulations, but once again, the Nebraska sand hills, two to four inches of snow. Then as you added to the panhandle, about four to eight inches of snow. Temperatures today and tomorrow behind that blast of Arctic air. 40 degrees colder than what we saw for daytime highs yesterday. Skies begin to clear tomorrow as high pressure pushes in from the northwest. That Arctic air mass begins to dislodge Wednesday as more low pressure approaches. The weather becomes once again more active again. A couple of rounds of precipitation will target the region late this week and again over the weekend. Thursday, the day to watch as the forecast models suggest the potential for a snow band from central to northeast Nebraska or maybe another wintry mix. In our long-term forecast, temperatures in Nebraska and Kansas expected to be mostly near normal or seasonal this weekend through the first four days of March. Cooler than normal temperatures expected in the Panhandle and the western third of the U.S. The precipitation forecast calls for mostly near-normal precipitation in Nebraska and Kansas this weekend through March 4th. Widespread snow will persist through late tomorrow across portions of the central and northern Rockies and into the high plains as that strong push of cold air pushes south through the Rockies and central U.S. Arctic air will continue to spill into the northern states with a significant drop in temperatures the next few days. Another cold front drops south from Canada, and that will reinforce the snow generation across the northern plains and portions of the upper Great Lakes. The front's progress through the central U.S. going to be fairly slow the next few days. That's going to set the stage for a potentially long-duration wet period for portions of the southern and central plains and the Mississippi Valley. Scattered to widespread rain and thunderstorms are forecast from Texas to the Great Lakes. Two to five inches of rain is forecast from eastern Texas to lower Michigan. This recent rain pattern in Argentina has been variable. There were heavy thunderstorms in about a third of the major crop belt towards Buenos Aires last night. The very dry areas of Cordoba and Santa Fe saw little rain. Rain is continuing in Brazil, and there are starting to be some negative impacts from that. Where harvest is underway, right now yields expected to be near last year's levels. The upcoming week, much of Brazil should stay wet, and only light rain is predicted in Argentina. Alrighty, your uh, ag weather, of course, brought to you by Kuhlman Repair. As we look at the weather forecast maps, uh, what kind of precipitations are you going to bet on here? 
Probably mainly snow now since the cold air is in place. But we, with that initial push of cold air, of course, we had the freezing drizzle, but mainly looking at some chances of snow. The best chance is going to be across northwest and north-central Nebraska. Then, of course, more of a freezing mix, uh, freezing drizzle, and freezing rain across eastern portions of Nebraska. All right. Are you betting on amounts that we get? Oh, about 40 to 8 inches once again towards the Panhandle, 2 to 4 inches in the Sand Hills, and mainly light amounts in west-central areas of Nebraska, from about Ord and Greeley down to Lexington, and points to the west, just some light accumulations. All right. Very good, Paul. Thank you very much. And a reminder that when you need weather anytime, krbn.com. pork production. Good afternoon, I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. U.S. pork exports broke new records for 2017. According to the Pork Checkoff Vice President for International Marketing, Craig Morris, Mexico, the number one market for U.S. pork. If you go by volume, Mexico was our shining star last year, uh, up 10%. Uh, we shipped uh, 1.768 billion pounds to Mexico, uh, so an unbelievably important market. Everybody talks about China uh, on a volume basis. China's our number two market at just over uh, 1 billion pounds. Uh, but that was 9% down uh, from where we were in 2016. And that's one of the things that I think it's important for everyone to understand is we have different markets all over the world, and that diversification is really important for us to have a year like we just had where exports are up uh, 6% on, a, on a, um, a tonnage basis and 9% on a value basis even when a, a market as important as China is down. Japan's our third largest volume market, uh, about 868 million pounds. They were up 2%. Uh, Canada uh, uh, comes in and next with uh, 459 million pounds, up 1%. But we've got these minor markets like South Korea. They were up 28%, uh, which is phenomenal growth, to 382 million pounds. And South America was up 57% uh, to 229 million pounds. At $1.2 billion, Japan is the top value market for U.S. pork. Japan's a high-value market uh, because we put we put a lot of fresh loins into that market, some high-value items. Uh, Mexico, which is our number one tonnage market, is actually our number two value market at $1.514 billion, or up 12%. Mexico, we're shipping in a lot of uh, bone-in hams, uh, but also a lot of variety meats. Uh, fully 86% of variety meats we export go to Mexico and China. China comes in next at a little over $1 billion, and, and even though they were down on a tonnage basis, their, their dollars were actually pretty steady. Uh, Canada comes in next at $792 million. Uh, they were actually down uh, 1% in terms of value. And then those high-growth areas of South Korea, uh, they were up 30% on a value basis, and South America of 58% on a value basis come in uh, rounding out the top five. As badly as things have gone for immigration on the Senate side, not looking any easier on the House side. Republican leaders there are scrambling to find enough GOP votes to pass a measure that's even more restrictive than the proposal by President Trump that we saw flop on Thursday. Compounding those divisions are pressure from some of the House's most conservative members who are casting the effort on a pivotal test for Speaker Paul Ryan, a Republican from Wisconsin. It is, as they say, the defining moment for the speaker, according to Representative Mark Meadows, a Republican from North Carolina, who leads the hard right House Freedom Caucus, which helped force former Speaker John Boehner from his job in 2015. Ryan Aides did not respond to a request for a comment from Meadows' marks, but underscoring their party rifts, some Republicans defend the speaker and his work on the issue. 
Even if House leaders managed to push the measure through their chamber, it would be dead on arrival in the closely divided Senate. Democrats there could ensure the demise because any immigration measure would need 60 votes to survive, meaning bipartisan agreement is mandatory. All of the underscores are unlikely, that is, if Congress will approve sweeping election year legislation on the subject, including something that may help those young dreamer immigrants stay in the United States. Now, the divisions bowed poorly for the bill by House Judiciary Committee Chairman Bob Goodlate of Virginia and Homeland Security Committee Chairman Michael McCall of Texas, that conservatives back the leaders, has said they'd try to bring it to a House vote. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Shaylee Peters joining you now here on the Rural Radio Network. And our guest today, Kyla Haybrock. She is with the Nebraska Pork Producers, but also on the Nebraska FFA Foundation Board. And Kyla, we are talking today because this is National FFA Week and so much is happening in FFA and uh, I want you to first start off by talking about you have become very active now that you are no longer involved of course on the high school level but talk about your history with FFA kind of where it started for you. Well I was a member in Gothenburg and participated in um, a number of leadership skills events like cooperative speaking and parliamentary procedure, as well as different career development experiences with um, agricultural sales and so forth, had varying levels of success, um, you know, in terms of earning awards and recognition, uh, and then, of course, uh, came on to college, um, to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and studied agricultural journalism because of my experiences uh, both in the classroom in Gothenburg and then also through my um, participation in different events. And Kyla, what would you say are some of the benefits that FFA has provided for you as you have grown and into your professional and your personal life as an adult? Well, some of the benefits of participation in FFA for me personally have been the relationships that I've um, built with people that go back from those contests, you know, students that we were competing against in other chapters at the district or state level, you know, we kept intersecting one another, whether it was at the Nebraska Agricultural Youth Institute or in classes on campus. So um, that relationship piece is super important and um, really do think that in that manner, FFA helps to facilitate, you know, your own growth and development as well as what you will grow and develop into in terms of like some of your greatest friends and colleagues. And when I think of the opportunities for the youth now who are um, having these experiences at the Nebraska FFA Foundation, we're very intentional about providing experiences um, that are going to help support um, those youth experiences at the local level Um, As well, you know, we see that that opportunity is going to grow agriculture and develop them as leaders. So that is super exciting work that I am so proud to be a part of. And finally, Kyla, talk to us about you get the opportunity. I'm sure you'll be at the upcoming Nebraska State FFA convention happening in April, and you'll see a lot of those blue jackets uh, where you once were. So I want you to talk to us about if you could give them a piece of advice, what would that be? Well, um, I would say that you're never too young to pour into someone else. Um, and what I mean by pouring into them is that you can share your time, your treasure, and your talent at any age. And um, hopefully the recognition and the connectedness um, between the experiences of that high school student or maybe even a middle school student, Shaylee, um, participating in 
um, an agroscience fair project for the first time um, is really, uh, you know, because of the investment of another time, treasure, or talent that makes those opportunities available. So um, I believe that that mentorship cycle, um, you know, continues uh, to roll and that um, the engagement from youth at all levels is critical for that. So I look forward to challenging Nebraska FFA to pour into one another. Kyla Haybrock, she's with the Nebraska Pork Producers, also on the Nebraska FFA Foundation Board, talking to us today as we kick off National FFA Week. I'm Shaley Peters, and you're listening to the Rural Radio Network. It's midday on the Rural Radio Network. Time to check sports. Here's Jason Jorgensen. Hey, thanks, Dirk. Well, Nebraska's NCAA tournament chances certainly took a hit yesterday as the Huskers lost at Illinois 72-66. to That loss snapped Nebraska's six-game winning streak. Illinois closed the game in a 14-5 run over the final six minutes as the Huskers dropped to 20-9 on the year and 11-5 in Big Ten action. Head coach Tim Miles says it was just one of those days. You know, really disappointing. I, I just, I, I was disappointed we didn't practice better coming into this, and I was disappointing that I think maybe you and I mentioned, you know, they looked like they were ready for a game, but not sure how willing they were to, mm-hmm. you know, do the work to get ready for the game. And that's not an indictment on these guys. They always play hard, but boy, tonight we just, um, you know, it's hard. This league's hard. And Miles made his comments on his post-game show on the Huskers Sports Network. The Huskers remain in fourth place in the league, tied with Michigan after the Wolverines upset Ohio State yesterday. Nebraska's back at home tomorrow night against Indiana. Virginia strengthened its hold of number one in the AP Top 25, while Duke jumped back to the top five after a pair of impressive wins. Cavaliers earned 42 of 65 first-place votes. That's 12 more than last week when they reached number one for the first time since the Ralph Sampson era. The top four remained unchanged with second-ranked Michigan State earning 19 first-place votes. Third-ranked Villanova got the other four first-place votes after winning at fourth-ranked Xavier. Now, fifth-ranked Duke jumped seven spots after beating Virginia Tech and Clemson. Middle Tennessee checks in at number 24, marking its first AP Top 25 appearance in program history. There's a big matchup on Big Monday in the Big 12 as 13th-ranked Kansas will host 23rd-ranked Oklahoma. That one is due to start at 8 Central. The Oscar baseball team opened up a year by winning threat of its first four games after a 5-3 victory yesterday over Washington State. Matt Warren made his first start as a Husker and went five innings, giving up just two runs. He struck out four. The Huskers return to Arizona this week when they visit Surprise Arizona for the Big Ten Pac-12 Challenge. Nebraska has two games against Perennial Power Oregon State and two games against Utah from Thursday to Sunday. And in other baseball news, the San Diego Padres and free agent first baseman Eric Hosmer have reached a preliminary agreement on an eight-year deal reportedly worth $144 million. The 28-year-old two-time Gold Glove winner spent his first seven seasons with the Royals, hitting 284 with 127 home runs and 566 RBIs. He's coming up year in which he hit a career-high 318. Royals have also announced they will not spend any money on any high-priced free agents and will start the rebuilding process this season. That's a look at sports. Have a great day. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network. Freezing drizzle and light snow in the forecast across Nebraska tonight with lows in the teens in the east to around five above in the west. I'm Dave Schroeder. 
Six years after Nebraska voters rejected the pay increase for state lawmakers, a fresh crop of senators is asking again. A legislative panel will be reviewing a proposed ballot measure that would set lawmakers' salaries at half of Nebraska's median household income, currently at $28,000. Nebraska lawmakers now earn $12,000 a year before taxes, placing them among the nation's lowest-paid state legislators. Some conservative lawmakers and groups say that once opposed an increase say they are now supporting the idea because they're struggling to recruit new legislative candidates. Supporters say the raise would help diversify a legislature dominated by retirees, lawyers, business owners, and those who are young and childless. Senator Tony Vargas of Omaha says increasing pay would allow more working people to run for the legislature. The U.S. Senate failed to reach a DACA fix agreement last week, and the fate of DREAMers, along with President Trump's proposed border security and immigration reform pillars, remain undetermined. Vice President Mike Pence gives his take on what the next steps are for immigration reform. I think it was a a great disappointment uh, to millions of Americans who see the four pillars of President Trump's proposal, but also... It's a deal that permanently solves the issue of DACA. You have 1.8 million people that were brought into this country as minors, uh, are here through no fault of their own, and, and President Trump, with the compassion of the American people, has said, we're willing that we should solve that. Last September, the president announced an end to the DACA program and provided Congress six months to come up with legislative solution. The deadline for an agreement is March 5th. A Kansas House committee rejected a bill designed to prevent earthquakes triggered by oil and gas production wastewater disposal methods. The bill was supported by several Kansans who said their homes were damaged by the quakes, while the oil and gas industry strongly opposed it. The number of earthquakes in Kansas, particularly in the south-central region, has increased in recent years. Our app puts regional, ag, national, and area news just one click away anytime. Reporting from the KRVN News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. While it's cold outside and there are no insects buzzing around yet, it won't be long before they will become a nuisance to farmers. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm Chabella Guzman. The Nebraska Extension held its annual High Plains Ag Lab report last week for area producers to learn more about the research going on at the lab. Jeff Bradshaw, Nebraska Extension entomologist, had some new information on the wheat stem softfly and tillage. He says they have done a couple of years of study looking at the impact of tillage on the stem softfly. Bradshaw tells us more on the research. By that we mean tillage in fallow, in our summer fallow, and what impact that might have on wheat stem softfly. And what we've What we did, because there's a lot of different tillage implements and times of the year, um, I did a kind of a poll and asked people if they were going to exercise tillage in their fallow, when would be the best time of the year for them, uh, what would work best for their operation. And um, spring was the choice, uh, and we went with a tandem disc uh, because it's a widely available tool. And I know from previous data that uh, it's just aggressive enough that it it has a likelihood of working, uh, whereas some of our lighter tillage tools wouldn't uh, be aggressive enough to really turn turn residue over and, and trap those softlocks. Bradshaw explains more of what they found from the tillage. So what we found is uh, in our treatment set we had uh, one pass with a tandem disc or two pass over the ground with a tandem disc or no-till. And what we found is it didn't 
matter if it was one or two passes, both of them were the same, uh, and both of them significantly decreased the emergence of wheat stem softfly relative to the no-till. This was good, but Bradshaw says part of the reason the study was set up was to gauge the effect of tillage on fallow borders in keeping the wheat stem softfly out of adjacent fields. Since there's a, a number of producers that have been um, going around their fields uh, with one pass around the borders to try to see if that would have any impact on wheat stem softfly uh, infesting the adjacent wheat. And so what we found is that even though the tillage works, it had no impact on uh, softfly adults in the adjacent wheat. So populations in some of our fields are so high that they're almost uniformly infesting the entire field. So just applying a treatment on part of the field really isn't going to be enough, unfortunately, to, to manage that insect. Bradshaw thinks the softfly is literally flying across the fallow areas into the wheat fields next door. Basically, in our study, I think what happened was, while our tillage treatments were effective, you know, it was just a small fraction of the total uh, wheat fallow um, in that field. So the softflies just emerged further downfield and flew up in the air, flew over our plots, and then infested that adjacent wheat. So uh, I feel if tandem disc is going to be a useful tool in combating wheat stem softfly, that tandem disc is going to have to be used across all of the infested fallow. So might be a bit more extreme than some of our producers want to engage in. On the other hand, if your softfly problem continues to persist and it's difficult for you to get a hold of a solid stem wheat, that might be the only option yet. Among the questions from producers at the meeting was one on using anything else to till the fields. Could a grower use a, a sweep or a chisel um, some of the studies were done, similar studies were done in the mid-90s uh, looking at a whole host of tillage implements and the chisel of the sweep just didn't, didn't do enough. It's not aggressive enough and for the most part, you know, a chisel doesn't turn the soil much. It just kind of lifts up the residue, um, you know, which is great for things like weed control, uh, but it's not aggressive enough to actually turn over residue and kind of bury those soft lies. At least I think that's probably how it's functioning with that tandem disc and why that tandem disc seems to be a better tool for that. Along with a study on the tillage, Bradshaw has also been working on research dealing with the parasitoid wasp, which kills the wheat stem soft lie. Bradshaw says they have done a survey on the stem soft lie with growers' assistance. What we found is that uh, from 2011, when we started the survey, that there's been an increase in the intensity and geographic distribution of the wheat stem softline, to the point now that there really isn't uh, a dryland wheat field in the panhandle that you can't find a wheat stem softline. The good news with that is, as we've conducted that survey, which is fairly intensive, involves a lot of splitting of stems and documenting softline larvae, whether they're alive or dead, all of a sudden in 2015 we started finding a lot of parasitoid PP that attack the softfly. So that was sort of an aha moment and perhaps a big opportunity for our producers. Now Bradshaw says the key is to figure out where the parasitoids are coming from. If I can figure out where those parasitoids are coming from and under what conditions do they thrive. As a result of that survey, uh, received some support from the wheat board. Uh, brought a student on board, a master student, to kind of look into that question of uh, where are those parasitoids actually coming from? Because we know they're not coming from the fallow. And 
if there's anything we can do in terms of recommendations or plantings uh, that might boost their numbers and make them more effective. We've been talking with Jeff Bradshaw, entomologist with the Nebraska Extension, on some research he's been doing on managing the wheat stems off fly in fields. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm Chabella Guzman. And welcome back to the Rural Radio Network. Bryce Duskit with you as we take a look at agriculture news and information. In the beginning of February, the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture announced that 187 regions in the United States currently suffer from shortages of livestock and public health veterinarians. The American Veterinarian Medical Association believes that students in debt is partly to blame for the shortage. Student debt is making it difficult for young veterinarians to work in rural areas where salaries are typically lower. There is a problem that helps alleviate that burden, and the AVMA is encouraging Congress to expand it. It's called the Veterinarian Medicine Loan Repayment Program. However, it does not receive enough funding to currently meet the demand. Dr. Jim Wiseman, Assistant Dean for Student Affairs and Clinical Associate Professor at Purdue University College of Veterinary Medicine, says he talks with students who qualify for the program and encourages them to apply. The average national education debt for a veterinary student is, is approximately $180,000. I think it's an essential program by the federal government to help take veterinary medicine to the areas where it's needed because veterinary medicine doesn't just touch animals, but it really touches all people as well. Wiseman believes that the shortage may also stem from a student's upbringing, saying those that come from a strong animal agriculture background will often return to that type of practice. We look at the change of student demographics now, people demographics, with some of these areas being consolidation, so we see less people coming from rural or farm backgrounds to school, and that starts to decrease the number of people that are looking to do that. Wiseman also says that there's not a shortage of those enrolling in the school, as they've had over 1,200 applications for only 84 spots in the class of 2022. But the questions remain, which area the veterinarian practice those 84 and others who come after choose? Farm income is projected to drop in 2018, but Robert Tigner, agricultural systems economist educator for Nebraska Extension, outlines some characteristics of financially resilient farms. Tigner says that capturing higher revenue during times of rising commodity prices is more important than managing costs. However, farm operators must not lock in costs during these good times that can't be reduced when prices do decline. During times of declining commodity prices, controlling cost is more important. Tigner outlines the characteristics and steps to be a resilient farmer in this down economy. He says that controlling costs is important, as well as renegotiating cash rents, reducing capital spending, reduce family living costs, increase revenue, and increasing off-farm income. Tigner points out that these suggestions could take some very serious conversations and open communication within farm families, but the viability of the farm is at stake. And finally this morning, a petition drive to place a $1.1 billion property tax relief proposal on the November 2008 ballot for voter approval will begin collecting signatures this week. The Yes to Property Tax Relief Committee has formed to manage the effort. Petitions are printing and circulators will start collecting signatures this week, says Trent Feller, spokesperson for the committee. The committee must collect 85,000 signatures before July 5th to place the proposed Property Tax Relief Act on the bill. The act would provide property taxpayers with a refundable income tax credit equal to half of their property taxes collected by the local school district. 
That credit would mean a 30% overall reduction in property taxes for most taxpayers, the committee says, and would also drop Nebraska's property tax burden from the 5th highest to the 25th nationally. From the Nebraska Soybean Board News Desk, which is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff, this is the Rural Radio Network. Protein is becoming a more sought-after quality in wheat. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm Chabella Guzman. Throughout much of the plains, we've had exceptional wheat yields, but with that have been low proteins. So the millers and bakers have had a shortage of enough high-protein wheat with which to make the flour they need that has the high-rising and good bread-making characteristics. Lucas Hogg, Northwest agronomist with Kansas State University, says there are some things producers need to keep in mind when thinking about wheat protein this year. The biggest thing we have to keep in mind is environment. is still our largest driving factor. So those years when we get uh, cool, uh, long grain fill periods, we're adding a lot, which are good for wheat yield, those are also the years it's going to be the, the hardest to maintain high protein levels in the wheat. But there's some things we can do from a management standpoint. Uh, we got to make sure we've got enough uh, nitrogen available out there to because we have to first maximize yields before we can start adding nitrogen to create to that, that creates the protein. And so making sure we're doing a good job of, of uh, applying that nitrogen efficiently, getting enough out there for our yield goal, uh, and then you know moving forward from that, that ensure that we can maintain some, some good proteins in our wheat. Hogg says the protein is laid down first in the wheat kernel, and then it's management on nitrogen that can help the producer. The protein's laid down first, and so then as if we have a really good growing season, we keep adding starch. We dilute that protein down. And, and nitrogen is the largest component of that of that protein. And so one thing producers can really look at is, is if they are consistently raising wheat that is less than 11.5% protein, that's a pretty good indication that their, their nitrogen program's on the light side. And, and not only only are they hurting themselves from a protein standpoint, but if you're under 11.5% protein, you're probably also leaving yield on the table as well. Nitrogen, urea, or both, Hug talks about the various ways producers can build a plan for getting the most protein out of their wheat. Yeah, so we, we've got some options there, you know, for producers right now getting ready to top dress wheat or thinking about it. Um, you know, we've got dry urea versus versus UAN, and, and they each have uh, some advantages and disadvantages. Of course, cost per pound is something to look at. Um, but, you know, the nice thing about dry urea in, in like, our, our no-till systems where we've got residue, those prills can, you know, work their way down and get in contact with the soil surface. Hogg says there are some good reasons for using liquid UAN in your wheat planting plan. Uh, an advantage that the liquid UAN has is that, you know, it's half ammonium nitrate, so it's got half the potential for volatilization loss that dry urea has. So, so we have some, you know, typically a little higher efficiency, uh, out of UAN than, than dry urea, especially, but the key to that is in our, in our no-till systems or high residue systems, we really need to be putting that liquid on with, with a streamer bar. If we put it on, if we broadcast it with flat fan nozzles, we lose a lot of that efficiency. We've been talking with Lucas Hogg, agronomist with Kansas State University, on getting more protein from your wheat. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm Shabella Guzman.